A Seminar on Freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and Light Ali, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our Seminar on Freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're reaching out from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum contained in a contradiction, both a confirmation and a crime scene. I often imagine Chicago wrapped in that distinctive yellow crime scene tape, which says, do not enter, criminal investigation underway. We know that these lands were stewarded for millennia by many indigenous peoples and lineages, and we stand in solidarity in our search for truth, repair, and reconciliation. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. Listeners of Under the Tree are well aware of the fact that the U.S. is a prison nation with over two million people locked inside its cages every day. Aware also that we're abolitionists involved in the movement-making and world-building work that will make prisons obsolete. But the carceral state is a many-legged monster with dangerous tentacles stretching out in every direction. There are now over four million people under state supervision on parole or probation, an enormously expensive enterprise that does nothing to reduce risk to society while creating enormous hazards for anyone coming home or caught in its web. One in four people caged today is locked up for violation, curfew, association, failure to report, and more. We're heading over to the intrepid Pilsen Community Books, a familiar and favorite haunt of ours, for a conversation with Vinnie Schiraldi author of Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. Uh, Hi, y'all. I'm Mandy Medley, one of the worker owners at Pilsen Community Books, and we're always excited to host Bill here for his podcast, Under the Tree. And it's a special treat tonight to have Vincent Chiraldi here to celebrate his new book, Mass Supervision. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get out of the way, but before I do, I want to introduce the two up here. Uh, Bill Ayers is a beloved author, activist, and educator, and rabble rouser here in Chicago. And he is also the host of Under the Tree podcast. And Vincent Chiraldi is the founder of the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice and the Justice Policy Institute. He has served as Director of Juvenile Corrections in Washington, D.C., Commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation, and Commissioner of the New York City Department of Correction. He has been a Senior Research Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and co-founded the Columbia University Justice Lab. 
and he is also the author of Mass Supervision from the New Press, and he lives just outside of Washington, D.C. And I'm going to let Bill give you a very special introduction. I didn't mean to leave you out. <laughs> Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Mandy, and it's great to be here. Uh, two quick things. One is that um, we are taping this for the podcast Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. Um, and I invited my dear friend, uh, Ronaldo Hudson, to join us up here in this conversation. Ronaldo works for the Illinois Prison Project, where he's the educational director. Um, we work very closely together on prison education, on abolitionist politics, and trying to figure out how we're going to get rid of this system that I think we have a, a big enough consensus in Illinois that we ought to, but we seem unable to make that last push over the cliff. So that's part of what we're talking to, about tonight. Um, but Ronaldo has been a, a close comrade for several years, and we have common cause in trying to get rid of the punishment bureaucracy and the Illinois state prison system. So thank you for being here. The other thing I always say when we're here at the bookstore, thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Mac. Thank you, all of you, so much. Um, but this is an independent bookstore, and this is a public space. This is a place where we can come together freely without masks or with masks, but without pretenses, and really face each other authentically. It's an invaluable institution. So I want you to buy a book tonight, for sure, to support this institution. We can't assume that we'll always be here. These things come and go, and we need to take what's valuable to us and give it all the material support we can. So I urge you to buy two books, uh, uh, two copies of Mass Supervision, <laughs> one for yourself and one for a friend, and then buy a third book. Any book you buy, Vinnie Giraldi will sign it for you, right? <laughs> and, and I'll draw a cartoon in it, and, and Ronaldo might piece of, put a piece of art in it, right? So please, support this bookstore. Support a valuable community institution. So, Mandy has introduced us. I'm going to just begin right off by saying it's such a pleasure to have Vinnie here in Chicago. We are old, old friends. He is a comrade of Bernadine Doors, my wife's, um, for many, many years. And one of the, I'm sorry? Did you say my wife? Oh, God. I didn't mean to say my wife. Um, I meant to say my friend and comrade of 30 years, um, 53 years, sorry, um, who's counting. But uh, Vinny and Bernadine go way back uh, in coalitions around doing away with the juvenile death penalty, doing away with juvenile life without possibility of parole, and many, many other evil aspects of the punishment bureaucracy. So it's just a great pleasure to see you again, Vinny, to have you here. And I guess I want to open by talking a bit about the book, which is a stunning accomplishment in your many accomplishments. And I guess I'd like you to begin by telling folks a bit about where we are in terms of parole and probation and how we got here. Give sure. us a little of the history. Sure. And this is my very first book and my very first bookstore conversation about a book. So go ahead. Please go gentle on me a little bit tonight. And no if way. I, if no I, way. No way. Tough, tougher and tougher. It's Chicago. Yeah, it's Chicago. We don't do gentle. So if I go yeah. on too long, just poke me or something okay, like that, right? Um, so you know, in the 1840s, they were inventing probation and parole. Uh, probation in America, parole in uh, Australia and France kind of simultaneously. Um, probation, a bootmaker in... Uh, Boston, a guy named John Augustus, thought that 
the House of Corrections was an abomination and showed up in court and was bailing people out and saying to the judges, I will work with them and bring them back here and there'll be new men and women when I bring them back. Uh, and he was so successful at this that a bunch of his temperance movement buddies started helping him out. It was all a voluntary proposition. They bailed out like 2,000 people and a handful of them, uh, they lost the bail. Uh, but all the rest of them, it worked out okay. It was very helpful, very friendly. Uh, parole uh, was uh, credited to a guy named Alexander McConaughey, who was a warden of a prison on Norfolk Island in Australia. Um, and when he showed up, the prison there was terrible, and uh, he thought if people were encouraged uh, to participate in programs and behave better by being released early, and then supervised once they were released, uh, they behaved better in prison, and he was credited with turning that prison around. Um, he called it tickets of leave. You would earn points towards leaving. Uh, at the same time, parole was being invented in France. We don't have as much history on that, but the word for word, give my word when I leave prison to be good in French is parole, hmm. uh, and that's the, the term that stuck. Um, and so in, 18, in the 1840s, it was being invented in those places with two goals, help people turn their lives around and reduce incarceration, which was already being sort of recognized as a brutal, horrible thing. <clears throat> kind of went along that way with this notion of rehabilitation and friendliness for the next 100 plus years until the 1970s and then took a nasty turn for the worse. But I'll stop there. Uh, don't stop there. Um, the 1970s, it took a nasty turn to, for the worse. I want to put one parenthesis in here. One of the things we often do in the podcast is we hold up books that we think folks ought to read. We have an ongoing book of books. So I don't know if you've read McConaughey's Men by Norval Morris. No. Okay, Norval Morris was Bernadine's law professor a zillion years ago at the University of Chicago. He was uh, an, Australi an Australian... Um, uh, law professor and novelist, and he wrote a book called McConaughey's Men, which is a fictional story of this reformer named McConaughey, who on the prison island of Australia started a prison, which was, um, had no bars, had nothing but, it was a community, and folks built gardens and had jobs and all that. So it's worth checking out, Norval oh, Morris, McConaughey's Men. Uh, but I don't want you to stop there. I want you to go forward from 1970 and tell us what happened then to turn what, some would argue, had a good intention at its heart into something else. Okay, well, so... Um, a couple of things, a number of things were happening in the 1960s, 1970s. Apparently, a lot of people were protesting in the street, who knew, about <laughs> civil rights and the Vietnam War and other issues. Um, and that was kind of freaking out the, what Richard Nixon would later call a silent majority. And so at this point, just so you all know about me, I'm living in blue-collar Brooklyn. My, my dad's a cab driver. My uncles were all truck drivers. And trust me, they were freaked out. Uh, if, if folks were looking to freak them out, it was working um, because they were starting to move to the suburbs uh, and get out of Brooklyn uh, because they were feeling like uh, there was anarchy. And Richard Nixon figured that out and he tapped into it. Uh, he started, uh, he and the Republican Party started the um, 
Southern strategy to peel off reliable Democrat voters from the South and from northern suburbs and from blue-collar communities extremely successfully. We're hearing echoes of that today with Donald Trump. And um, they did this by uh, politicizing uh, crime and poverty in ways they hadn't been before, particularly crime. The U.S. had not atypical incarceration rates prior to the 1970s. Starting in 72, Nixon declares a war on drugs, and uh, the incarceration numbers go up in the U.S. every year from 1972 to 2008. It's an extraordinary increase in incarceration. Um, I'm not going to read a lot from the book, uh, but I will read this quote from, from John Ehrlichman. Uh, he said, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And that was John Ehrlichman in his... Uh, in his uh, Nixon's chief of staff, right? Uh, so former assistant for de domestic affairs. Right. And, and Haldeman has a similar quote uh, in the book as well. Um, and so... A, not much after that, a, a obscure sociologist named Robert Martinson gets brought in to write up to join a, a, a group of City University of New York researchers who are researching what works and what does not work in prisons uh, to re rehabilitate people. And the the the, the study was equivocal. It, it looked at all the different studies on prison programs have found most weren't really implemented well they weren't funded as well as they could be and some had measurable impacts on recidivism lots of them didn't um and they basically the department of corrections in new york just kind of killed the report because it didn't really show much but martinson was was he wasn't happy about this that that the report was killed i think he kind of needed some level of prestige for himself so a few years later he releases it without the knowledge of its primary author, a guy named Robert Lipton, in uh, the neoconservative, uh, uh, oh, what is it, public, um, I'm blanking on the name, I apologize, uh, but he releases it in a, in a very prestigious neocon uh, publication, and it explodes. And it basically, uh, the way he describes it is nothing works when it comes to rehabilitating people who have run afoul of the law. He's on the front page of People magazine on 60 Minutes. I mean, back then, this was not something that was getting on 60 Minutes and, and People magazine. So he takes the death of rehabilitation to a new level. And now you think about the, the field of probation and parole, which were established for two reasons, to reduce incarceration and rehabilitate people. What do they have now? At least if you're running prisons, you got something to fall back on. You're incapacitating people, you're punishing them. So you don't you're not really worried that this rehabilitation thing's dead. You got plenty of punishment that you can lean on. But if you're probation and parole, what do you do? So the field pivots and it starts to become more punitive, more surveillance focused. It adds gobs and gobs of 
uh, conditions that have nothing to do with rehabilitation and nothing to do with reducing incarceration and nothing to do with public safety, frankly. So now all of a sudden, people can't stay out after curfew. People can't move from one county to another. People can't get a credit card without asking their probation officer or parole officer. People can't buy a car. People can't associate with other people with felony records. At its height, we got 5.2 million people on probation and parole, one out of 12 black men. At the same time, one out of three black men has a felony record. So how is that one out of 12 going to not associate with that one out of three on Thanksgiving or at church or on a basketball court or wherever? And so people start to get revoked in droves. And now, Bill, we're at the point where a quarter of everybody entering the largest prison system in the world are entering not because they commit a new crime, but because they violate one or more conditions of probation or parole. So you're describing a mass phenomenon. You call it mass supervision. One out of four people entering the system of mass incarceration are entering around violations. So folks can understand the nuts and bolts of that. Maybe you have a couple of stories. I know you. it's, it's interesting to me that on the back cover, you have uh, Meek Mill as one of the people who endorses the book, and we've all heard about his situation. But maybe tell us a couple of concrete stories about revocation and how that works. Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm writing papers and I'm teaching classes on this, so I'm, I'm talking at a lot of conferences. And one day I go to a, a nonprofit organization whose job it is to find people jobs when they come out of prison. <clears throat> and they're very successful and they're very data-oriented. So they're doing a randomized control trial. And they're assigning some people to a control group and some people to get their services and they're going to see what the difference is. And they're having measurable impacts on recidivism, right? The guys that are getting their program get rearrested less and measurable impacts on employment. They're getting jobs. They're getting jobs and they're getting rearrested less, but they're all going to prison at the same rate. And so their board is like, what's this about? And they try to explain what a technical violation is to their board, and they don't frankly believe them. They think they're hiding stuff, right? So they asked me, former probation commissioner, it was New York City, to come and explain this to the board. I give them my explanation like I gave you guys. And then there's another guy on the panel with me, and he tells his story. He was one of their clients. He got referred to them by his parole officer to get a job. They get him a good job, a tech job, uh, and it's, but it's at night. So it's after the, the, you know, the, the curfew, that parole was like 7 o'clock curfew was standard for New York. But his PO says it's okay, but his PO is not an idiot, so he knows I'm not going to ask for permission for this. Because if I ask for permission, by the time I get permission, this guy's not going to get this job. You're smiling, so I'm assuming this, this kind of rings a bell, right? So the PO says it's okay. So then his PO goes away, another PO comes on, he says it's okay. Third PO, she says it's okay. Fourth PO doesn't ask. She goes to the computer. There's nothing in the computer because nobody's asked, right? There's nothing in the database. So she just goes to his house at 730 at night, knocks on the door. He's not home, uh, you know, uh, issues a warrant for his arrest. He gets picked up, sent to Rikers Island. Uh, and it takes him like six weeks to figure out that he wasn't doing anything wrong and it's this is all okay. And then they release him from Rikers Island. But he says, you know, when I went into Rikers Island, I had a job an apartment, a car, and a girlfriend. When it came out six weeks later, all of that was gone. I had to start all over. And you know what was almost the most depressing part of that story? 
he wasn't even that freaked out by it. Yeah. This guy had gotten so used to being screwed by the system that this was like, well, at least I'm not in prison for a year. Right. Um, and I, I got more stories. I'll tell them as the time goes on. Um, if we did away with parole altogether, what would that look like? You I know, mean, if we abolished parole, right. what, would we be less safe? Would be, what, what, what would happen if you took every probation officer in Illinois? Or we don't have probation in Illinois, right? We don't have parole. No, we do. We have, we, we have parole, and we have probation, and we have all kinds of supervisions. We just don't have a system where people that are incarcerated can go up for right, parole. Right, right. But you have what's called MSR, mandatory exactly. supervised release. Right. And so... And really quickly, because I think it's important, the realization of what you're talking about is I did 37 years. Upon being given clemency by the governor, I was given three years parole. Right. Right. Which meant I had a parole officer to patrol my trauma. Right. Rather than a therapist to help me unpack it. That's right. And so one of the threats that was was that they could violate me mm -hmm. at any turn. And most parole officers will tell you, if I seek to get permission to let you do the right thing, right. I won't get the approval. Right. But go do it anyway. And so they put thousands of people at risk. So while those things are true and it happens every day, they are constantly putting the person under that supervision at risk of being arrested. Mm. Because if I'm told by, and many people are told by their parole officer, oh yeah, you can go to Indiana. But if you get arrested in Indiana, that parole officer is not going to say, I gave them permission. Right. So you're going to prison. And so one of the things inside prison, my job was, I was a, a peer educator. And one of my jobs was to orientate people that come into the prison as to what programs and rights they had access to. And the most often uh, people in that orientation room was people for what? Pro violations. Pro violations. Right. right. Because they come and go. They're coming in and out quick. Yeah. Yep. And, it, and it disrupts your life in a way like when you talk about going to, the, like, if you have family or you have an apartment and you're 60 days out and you don't pay your rent for two months and no one is there, then your landlord lock your stuff up. And so you more than likely lose all your stuff. You didn't pay rent, so you have no real uh, thing to fight about it. Because right. who do you go to and say, well, I was wrong. And once I went up before the prison review board who decide, oh, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. You're back released. Right. And they'll do it so with no, like, okay, you know what? You lost two months of employment. We're going to send you out with two checks, right? What was your salary? And we're going to pay compensate you for this error. They said, no, go out and figure out how to straighten it out. So anyway, I think it's important. I'm loving this conversation, and I am definitely want to do more with this book and you because this is a conversation that is not being had. Like, we're talking about de-incarceration, but we're not talking about, like, it's like algebra, yeah. right? You do the exponents and the variables, right, to get to the answer. And this is a part of the exponents that the Nixon era committed, which I love you broke that down because people don't realize it's intentional thoughts, right? It's like people, if you go back and look at a crowd in the face, the, a face in the crowd, old movie, black and white with Andy Griffin, mm -hmm. you'll see Donald Trump, right? And so I'm saying that to say all these are models 
And so thank you for like really like I really want to eat on this and dig into it because until we figure out our our collective power, which is people that's inside the system deciding this is not working and I really want to be safe. Yeah. You know, one of the things you you, you point to and, and I think. Kenny, I'd like you to talk to this. You point to the fact that this is an invisible system. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it, mm. prison, prisons are pretty much invisible. They're over there, and we pretty much disappear the people in, involved in them. But this is even invisible on top of invisible. Speak to that. Yeah, so what's everybody's favorite probation movie out there? Can you shout it out? Tell me your favorite probation, right? No, we don't know. We don't have an imagination about probation and parole. You know, if I asked you what your favorite prison movie, you might you might be able to pull one out, but like, this is not captured advocacy, research, philanthropy. Um, we've we've kind of let it fly under the radar. And if you talk to people under supervision or their families, right? I mean, Mike, Imagine that you lived in a world where you had no due process rights. People could come into your house and search your underwear drawer whenever they want to. If you did get picked up, you don't have a right to an attorney. You don't have a right against self-incrimination. You don't have a right to remain silent. Like the stuff that we normally think about. I talked to a bunch of law students about this today, and they were like, what? It's like, yeah, your clients, once, once you fight like hell – to put them on probation, all of those rights are gone. And and so, you know, you have a situation. I'll give you another story. Yeah. This guy named Kerry Lathan does 25 years in prison, comes out, he's on parole. Uh, and while he's uh, coming out, his uh, sister knows Nipsey Hussle. Nipsey Hussle's a, a musician, right? A whole bunch of people are nodding. I had no idea who Nipsey Hussle is, I confess, right? <laughs> Nipsey Hussle's a musician and, and uh, activist in California who got shot and killed. Um, Kerry Lathan uh, decides, he's, he's going to a funeral for a friend, and decides because his sister picked up a bunch of donations from Nipsey for him while he was coming out. So he had some nice clothes when he came out. Now he's going to buy a nice shirt because he's going to a funeral. He goes to his marathon closing store, clothing store. He goes on the same day that Nipsey Hussle, Hussle gets killed. So he's in that crowd around Nipsey Hussle at the marathon closing store. And, and Kerry Lathan gets shot himself uh, while somebody's sh shooting Nipsey Hussle. So he accidentally gets shot. Goes to LA hospital. And while he's in the hospital and while... President Obama and Mayor Garcetti are eulogizing Nipsey Hussle. Kerry Lathan's parole officer slaps a technical parole violation on him for associating with a known gang member, Nipsey Hussle, right? So he really literally takes him to L.A. Central Jail, notorious L.A. Central Jail, in his, in his wheelchair. Um, so this is while the whole world is watching this case and and – you know, when I started at probation in New York, um, the, fr I, the first time I did it, visited our Manhattan office, staff said, you know, there's a bunch of pro probation cases being heard in court. Do you want to come in? So I go in, and there's a woman convulsed in tears saying, asking the judge to violate her on probation and send her to Rikers Island, right, to the, one of the most notorious jails in the country because my rule – Right now, this is my department. So my rule, I'm there two weeks, is you can't bring your kid into the office. So she's a single mom. She lives in Harlem. The office is way downtown. So it's like an hour and change to get there. Sometimes you wait two hours to see your PO. 
and she's running out of favors. Like her aunt and her grandmother are not willing to watch her kid anymore because they got lives. And she's like, I, I don't know what to do. I can't leave my five-year-old alone, but I can't bring her to my office anymore. Just send me to jail. Uh, I just want to be done with this. There was a survey done in Texas where 69% of the people in prison in Texas said they would prefer to be in prison than on 10 years of probation. 50% said they'd prefer to be in prison than on five years of probation. And a third said they'd prefer to be in prison than on three years of probation. This is in Texas prisons. And they interviewed a Dallas area chief probation officer about the study. And he said, if I was given a choice, I would take prison over probation. So this is the thing that was set up to help and to reduce incarceration that becomes so onerous and so laden with meaningless technicalities that people are starting to prefer getting locked up. And that is ultimately what one researcher calls a, just a delayed form of incarceration, not a true alternative to incarceration. Yeah. It reminds me of something we've talked about, Ronaldo, the, the kind of the reforms that are not reforms, like, yeah. like the fight to do away with the, with the death penalty in Illinois, which was a great success, and we did do away with the death penalty. But so many reformers, even during the campaign, were saying, yeah, we'd rather you got life without possibility of parole. And I remember you saying to one very strong supporter, you said, look, that's not that's not what I want. You know, the idea that yeah. somehow uh, you're not going to electrocute me, you're going to kill me in prison, right? Yeah, I mean, death by incarceration. Like, think about it. Like, but that's like, what this they is like. celebrated, yeah. right? And it, and it's a lot to celebrate. To be clear, like yeah. oh, I learned. watched twelve people be executed, and so I was excited when they said, "Okay, we won't execute you." And then I said, "Well, wait a minute. You'll wait for me to die." by the oppression of corrections, mm -hmm. right? And I want to go back to this because yeah. it's so important that when you talk about like the number of people who used to, in Illinois, they have a thing called violate you. Yeah. They would go and I would be in the chapel because I was also the chaplain clerk. Mm -hmm. And so they would hold people in the chapel that have to see the prison review board. And out of 12 to 13 people that came every month, nine of those people, these are real numbers that I saw and I kept would be like, man, I'm not letting them put me on parole, like violate me. And I'll do a year right. more and then I'll come home. I'll just be done and I'll be done. Yep. And that is going on even as we speak yep. in Illinois as well. And so uh, it is. Wow. So, yeah, while it is, it was really amazing that the death penalty is ended in Illinois. But death by incarceration still exists. Yep. Death by parole, like I think that's an important thing too, right? Is still existing, and they're pushing it as public safety. Yeah, I want this person who's done thirty years, twenty-five years, twenty years, right? Who's all evidence-based research show that you age out, mm -hmm. and so the average person that has done ten years or more is so far away from committing offenses that is you know it's just wild that you would say we need to supervise you further right no you need to keep jobs for parole officers like how about sending those parole officers to school to become therapists and i want to keep saying that right because yeah. you need more people to have stuff unpacked rather than i'm going to patrol you mm -hmm. and then have if you let me come live with you bill right not only when i come out of prison do i subject myself to this parole officer 
But because you open your door to me, your home is now subject to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway, absolutely. yeah. So so go back to this. So so Ronaldo's saying the myth that it makes us safer because we have this parole system. Speak to that. Yes. Yeah, so it was, it was interesting when you were talking because there's a woman now named Amy Solomon who is the assistant attorney general uh, who's in charge of the nation's Office of Justice Programs, right? So this is like all of the programs that the Justice Department funds, Amy's on top of them. Okay. And when she was a researcher at the Urban Institute, she did a very careful study comparing what you just said, people who leave prison and aren't on parole, they just decide I'm going to max out because I don't want to deal with all of this, and people who leave on parole, and found that there was no difference in their recidivism rates. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't just a bunch of stories we did. We looked at all this research, and two of the people who are most into what they call evidence-based practices. Uh, James Bonta and, um, oh, God, this happens sometimes. Uh, let's just talk about him. Basically say probation and parole are not an evidence-based practice. There's really no evidence that they work. So me and a couple of my colleagues start to look at this, and we say, all right, let's look at all 50 states over the last 40 years, from 1980 to 2019. Let's control for a bunch of factors and see what is happening with the two elemental purposes of probation and parole, right? Supposed to reduce incarceration, supposed to turn people's lives around and improve public safety. So we control for a dozen factors, crime rates and racial disparities and political leanings of a state and found that probation and parole are associated with more, not less incarceration, the more people you have on probation and parole in a state either individually or collectively, the more people you incarcerate that year and the next year. And then we look at uh, crime in those states. Probation has no correlation one way or the other with crime. But parole, the more people you have on parole, the more violent crime you have in a state, either that year or the next year. And then we just look at other places that have dramatically reduced the number of people under supervision. Virginia zeroes out parole. Mm-hmm. No one's on parole supervision for four years. They have a 30% decline in crime. New York goes from having 82,000 people on probation to 11,000 people, and homicides drop by 75% during that period of time. Mm. So we start to ask ourselves, like, how naked is the emperor? Like, how much of this is, is there really no there there? And but then I, how, do you, how do you change the narrative? How do you... How do you make, I mean, okay, we, you've written a great book. How, how do you get the public to have a conversation about this that, that's based on reality? And frankly, I think that research often isn't the tool no, that no, we I think need right. to change the narrative. I think that's right. Meek Mill did more for it than my book will ever do, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, I think this is one of those cases where we might have a shot. I think abolition of prisons, defund the police really freaks out a lot of people. Am I allowed to curse on, on your own? Because who gives a shit? But really, on probation and parole, kind of who gives a shit about probation and parole? I, I lobbied, when I worked for Mayor Bloomberg, right, um, uh, he allowed me to, to, to push a bill in uh, Albany, New York, uh, to reduce the amount of time people are on probation and parole. So I got the opportunity to talk to a bunch of elected officials about how much time people serve on probation. First of all, they had no idea, right? Mm-hmm. And, and for many of them who chaired the, the public safety or the judiciary committee, they had no idea 
that you could be technically violated on probation, right? Are, are there things that are not crimes for which you can be incarcerated? I was like, do you know you said that out loud? Like, you're the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and a quarter of everybody coming into your prisons are coming in on technical violations. You don't even know that's true. So this, perhaps this level of apathy, and I really don't understand it and know it, might might provide an opportunity because we did pass that bill and we were able and to what shorten was the whole name of the bill. What did you, what did oh you well, call that it? that had no name, but it just shortened probation and parole. Okay. But then we got another bill passed several years later, and I had eight prosecutors support us on it, and it was to dramatically reduce technical violations. Less is more. That's called less is yeah. more. Yeah. Okay. Can you explain Yeah, he started with that, but say it again. What is a technical sure. violation? So technical violations means it's, a, it's a not a crime. There's a bunch of rules you have to be on. And in, somewhere in this book, and I should have tabbed it at the next thing, I will do that, right? It's my first, right? Uh, there's a list of all the things in Milwaukee that you can be violated for. Staying out past curfew, associating with other people, criminal records, getting a credit card, I kid you not. And there's usually a catch-all that is generally be good, right? Just stay away from people who are corrupting influences. Don't engage in behaviors that are problematic. I, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that stuff, right? And so it's a big truck you can drive through. What I didn't know before I came to probation, when I ran New York City's probation department, I had never worked in probation before. So that was, in my view, an advantage. So I was like, it was all new to me. And I did a listening tour you know, with my staff, 19 sessions. And it was mostly people of color were my probation officers and mostly people of color were on probation. So there was this enormous amount of anxiety during these meetings. And staff was was despondent. The morale was terrible. In fact, my predecessor had armed my probation officers, something the unions had pushed for over the years, because they felt that if they got uh, armed, they would get raises like the NYPD, the New York City Police Department had gotten. Um, and seven people, when they got armed, and it was seven years, uh, killed themselves. One of them killed themselves at their desk. So staff were really, really despondent. And I think part of that was they were imprisoning people of color, and they were people of color, for stuff that they did not believe they should be imprisoned for. And they, they explained that to me. They said... You know, we practice fear probation here. We all do things we don't think are right because if we don't and something goes wrong, you will throw us under the bus. And that was a real revelation to me. I, I did not come in thinking of that. I thought as an advocate, they were just mean bastards. And to be sure, there were some mean bastards in there, no question. But most of them were like lunch pail folks. And I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not, you know, like I'm not trying to put a value on that. I'm just saying many of them would have been happy to do it otherwise. And I said, well, what's it going to take? Literally, like, what would it take for you to revoke fewer people? And they said, yeah, all the rah-rah stuff is good, all you're trying to build morale, but at the end of the day, you got to put your name on a piece of paper that says don't do it. Because if your name's not on it, we're never going to believe that if we take a chance on somebody, you're not going to screw us. And think about it from their perspective, just for one second, right? If I am working with you and I think you've messed up a couple times, you're taking drugs, you're missing appointments, you're breaking my chops, you haven't broken any laws, but I'm smelling not good stuff from you. But I also think 
you know, I'm, I'm willing to work with you, but if I work with you and you go out and live a happy, healthy life, I get nothing for that. Whereas if you reoffend, I get thrown under the bus. I get moved to a different borough that's far away from where I live. I live on Long Island. I got a nice job in Queens now. You're going to send me to the Bronx to punish me. Or you're going to demote me. Maybe you'll even fire me. One chief probation officer I talked to, he said that a probation office he worked in, they used to have toilet bowl covers that they would convey a golden toilet bowl cover on a probation officer who believed a person on their caseload, and that turned out to be a lie, so that they would humiliate them in front of the whole staff. They'd put it on outside that person's door until the next person did it. So there were all these kind of ways to convey to people, don't take a chance. We don't want a Willie Horton. And that's all the way from the governor or the mayor, all the way right on down, and trust me, right at the front line, they get that. They get that message. You know, but but dive into the book and you'll find many, many more examples. When you go to court, you have the presumption of innocence putatively. You have a lawyer. You have the right to, you know, remain silent and so on. When you're at this end, at the back end, you got nothing. And so we heard there are stories in the book. We heard stories today about a guy who his wife was working. He had to take care of his two-year-old. His two-year-old was having an asthmatic incident. He couldn't get a hold of anybody. He finally got a hold of somebody. They had to go higher up to get him permission. He's got an ankle bracelet on. Am I going to go to the emergency room and get my kid the treatment he has to have and then violate? Or am I going to, I don't want to go back to jail. I don't want to go back to prison. So, Or am I going to just sit here with my kid turning colors, you know, in front of me. And he said it was just an impossible thing. And as we talked, there were many more examples yep. came up. A guy starts dating a, a girl and they're falling in love and they want to get married. She's a felon. She's a, you know, she's got a record. Can't do it. Be violated. I mean, it's just, it's insane. But frankly, I, it, I go back in my mind to even misdemeanor law in general. There's a wonderful, wonderful film by the filmmaker Robert Greenwald called Racially Charged, America's Misdemeanor Problem. And where did misdemeanor law came from? It came from the South. It came from the black codes. It came from the end of slavery. Jaywalking? Loitering? What is, why are these crimes? Right. Well, they entangle you in the system. And then Parole, parole violations just take that to another level. You can be put in prison for chicken shit stuff like, you know, not showing up to report. People with, you know, who are homeless, who are unhoused, and they can't show up to make a report, and then they get violated, and then they're back in. So it's an insane system. But Yeah. yeah. We didn't talk about the money part yet. To, talk to about we talk about like, so one of the chapters that I've gotten the most reaction about is called Blood from a Stone. And it talks about charging people on probation to be on probation. So what turns me on to this is I start in February, uh, which for a lot of uh, government workers is budget season. So I'm a brand new commissioner of this massive 30,000 person department. And my budget hearing is in two weeks. And it's um, a year and a half after the Great Recession, which hits New York particularly hard because our, our economy is driven by the stock market and by the real estate market, both of which have crashed. So we're taking a series of cuts. We call them PEGs, per, uh, Program to Eliminate the Gap, right? And so we've got a PEG. I got to deal with it. 
and there my my budget staff comes to me and says we the, we've cut everything we've had six pegs already up in the last 18 months and we've got to charge people on probation right which is very common to charge people to be under supervision and i said well you know that doesn't make any sense to me because they're poor and they're not going to be able to pay it and and then we're going to put them in jail which is way more expensive than being on probation anyway which interestingly from the standpoint of a government bureaucracy that's not a loss for us. That might be a loss for the city, but that doesn't come out of probation's budget. That comes out of the corrections department budget. So for us, who cares, right? That's what they're saying to me. It's insane. That is what they're saying to me, right? So who cares? So I said, nah, no good. What's plan B? And plan B was we had to lay off people. And so I laid off 156 staff. Now, my, by then I had 30,000 people on probation. It had dropped from 82,000 and we hadn't laid off any staff. So I didn't. I didn't lose much sleep over that, but I started with my staff thinking Vinny likes the bad guys more than he likes us good guys. And that's the way this plays out from the inside, right? These folks all knew the children's names of the people I laid off and their, and their husbands and wives' names. And so now it looks mean, right? And, and so like for folks outside, it's like, what are you thinking charging people? Because then you're going to incarcerate them because they can't pay or they're going to not come because they think you're going to incarcerate. Really, that's what happens mostly is I'm not showing up because I don't have the money and he's going to violate me. So I'd, I'd, rather, I'd, rather not, I'd rather get violated for absconding than for failing to pay because failing to pay, I'm just walking in and surrendering, right? And so, so that, that was my government experience. But down south where, you know, it's sort of misdemeanor land you're talking about. Lots of places, the state pays for felony probation, but the counties and cities have to pick up misdemeanor probation. So pretty quickly, somebody figures out, well, if, if government agencies can charge for that, so can private agencies, and we can make a buck on this. And so they start to go to county administrators and say, I know you're hurting. We just had this crash. I can do probation for free. You can fire your misdemeanor probation department, and my agency will do it for nothing. And we'll charge what's called user fees. We'll charge fees for the people on probation. So now you got a guy named Thomas Barrett. And there's a bunch of examples in the book, but I'll use this one. He's a pharmacist who starts to, he get, becomes addicted to drugs and uh, loses his license as a pharmacist, loses his family, loses his job, and becomes despondent and destitute, becomes an alcoholic, living in a $25 a month apartment. And... Uh, Steals a can of beer from a grocery store, gets busted, two dollars, um, and goes to court. Doesn't uh, get a public defender because it's fifty bucks for a public defender, and he can't afford that. So he represents himself, and the judge orders like a hundred dollar fine or something like that, which he can't pay. And in 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 some of these communities, if you can't pay the fine, if you've racked up a bunch of broken tail light and running stop signs fines, if you can't pay, you get on probation. So that they can get the money out of you through a payment plan. So in this case, it's private probation. So now he's got to pay the private probation fee. The private companies start to tax stuff on, even though it's not ordered by the court. So they order this guy to take urine tests. They put him on electronic monitoring. He's racking up all these charges. He starts selling his blood to pay for all his stuff. Um, and then he starts skipping meals because even with selling his blood, he's not able to do it. But when you skip meals, you become too weak to sell your blood. So it just, it all sort of spirals for the guy. Finally, he's like $1,000 in arrears for this $2 can of beer. 
And he just says, I can't do it. And they lock him up for a year. So he did a year behind that. What would you do with, I mean, if you blew sky at a little bit, yep. give us your North Star. I mean, if you, what, what should we be looking for? I mean, I, you know this about me, but what we're really looking for is abolition. Aboli I mean, when freedom is the question, abolition is the answer. But, but as we're working toward this, in the probation system, what would be your kind of uh, North Star? So I, I equivocate in the book. Um, I, I recommend two things. One is dramatically reducing the number of people on probation and parole, making it less punitive, abolishing technical violations, basically. You just shouldn't violate people unless they break the law. And if they break the law, it should just be whatever happens to everybody else. Shouldn't be anything special. And that really just should go back to the helping function it was originally designed to be. But then I also muse that if you know, in some places have dramatically reduced the number of people under supervision. New York was one example. It went from 82,000 people to 11,000 people and crime went down. California, they dropped 170,000 people off of probation and parole rolls. Crime went down. Um, I, I muse that, you know, if, if less is better, maybe none would work. And so I, like I suggest that we try it out and research it and say like, okay, if, if we just didn't put anybody that is convicted of a misdemeanor on probation, we just didn't do it, and we captured the savings and sort of worked with communities to come up with solutions that define safety for them, what would that look like? Or in determinate sentencing states like this one, right? Because you don't go before a parole board mostly in Illinois. You mostly just get out minus some amount of good time. So they can't not release you if there's no parole, because some places, if there's parole, if you actually go before a parole board, then they might not release you if there's no parole officer, because they think that's something, right? But in determinate sentencing states, that wouldn't happen. So let's imagine we took determinate sentencing states and said, let's not supervise people post-release. Post let's calculate how much money that would save in New York when we reduce, when we pass less is more, it was over $600 million worth of savings. And let's go to their communities. We know what those communities, where those communities are, right? We know where people are coming from, where they're going back to, and say, what's safety look like for you? You can buy whatever you want. Harlem, South Chicago, you can buy whatever you want. I'm pretty sure most of the people in the neighborhood and say, best thing we could do is let's buy a whole bunch of probation and parole officers. No fucking way. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. not what they're going to no. do. I'm pretty sure they're going to say, how about housing? How about helping guys get jobs and gals get jobs? How about mental health and substance abuse? You know, I love that example because in Chicago, where a bunch of young organizers, they win the fight, but they people sometimes mistake winning the fight with winning the, the larger narrative. In Chicago, when Mayor Rahm Emanuel closed 50 schools in black communities and wanted to build a cop academy for $95 million, young, smart activists went into the community and they did a survey. If you had $95 million, what, what would you like to do with it? Building a cop academy never never appeared. <laughs> right, exactly. right? I mean, there were there were thousands of things you could do before you would want to build the cop academy. So I like that kind of way of approaching advocacy and research because if you listen to people, they're not stupid. They know what doesn't work and what works, and so to some degree. And I think that's a really beautiful example. That was my interview with Bloomberg. I mean, I start the book with my interview with, with Mayor Bloomberg, and you know, I go in. He's talking. He's 
getting in trouble because he's not hiring a lot of people from New York City. And I'm finally, he's got a New York City guy. I grew up in Brooklyn. I went to this high school. I went to that college. He's thrilled, right? Finally, he's like, okay, so what do you think about probation? And literally, he could barely look at me when he asked. I was so much more excited about what high school I went to right. than to how now I got to talk to this guy about probation and act yeah. for the next 15 minutes like I care about probation, right? Which is true for most politicians, not just Bloomberg. Right. And I said, I, you know, I don't think much of probation. I think it's a poor service given to poor people um, who politicians don't really give a shit about. By that time, he had dropped several F-bombs, so I could say shit. Um, and and that, you know, like most people don't even know what to do about it. And he said, what do you mean? Give me, Tell me more. I said, well, let's imagine this. Let's imagine probation didn't exist. And I gave you $80 million and 30,000 people that were in some ways troubling and had 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 problems. And I said, do whatever you want to help this, this group out. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't run out and hire a thousand civil service protected disinterested bureaucrats to have them piss in a cup once a week and tell them to go forth and sin no more. And he said, no, I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, I haven't been to your probation office, but I'm betting that's what you got right now. And he looked over, there were three deputy mayors in the room, and they all said, yeah, that's pretty much what we got right now. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do about it? And that and that's really kind of, yeah. like I didn't have an answer then. Right. I have a better answer now. Right. But I think that we got to kind of pick this fight. Well, you know, one of the things I find interesting in your career, your life, um, I've known you for a long time, and then you look at the blurbs on the back of this book, and it's got Mayor Bloomberg, boo, help me out here, boo, <laughs> yeah, right. And then you got Meek Mill, pretty interesting. Yeah. And then you got people like Reginald Dwayne Betts. Yeah. Yes. So it's kind of interesting. And, and in a way, this back cover, when I looked at it, I said, yeah, this kind of reflects Vinny's contradiction. I would like you to speak to the contradiction. You're an advocate, an activist, a social worker by training, and a government bureaucrat and part of the punishment bureaucracy. How do you, how do you, how do you, you know, kind of square that triangle? I'm still working that out, Bill. <laughs> like I really am. Like you know, I mean, there are times. Also, you do research and you yeah. work at Columbia. I mean, there are times like I'm in there and I'm, tr you know, I'm troubled. Like when you're running a system every day that bad stuff's happening, you own it. it you own it in a different way than than when you're an advocate or when you're researching it. Um, it's your bad stuff, and you can't just push a button and change it. Um, like this system I run now, it's it's not as bad as many. I mean, I ran Rikers Island for seven months. That was heartbreaking. I mean, it was truly heartbreaking. And 400 people got stabbed and slashed the year I was there. 16 people were killed and died. And you own that. And, you know, I I think very highly of myself. So I think I can fix stuff. And I think I can make stuff better. I think I can lock fewer people up. I think it's important to have somebody on the inside saying this kind of stuff that I say in the book. I think that complements when formerly incarcerated people say it. And they compliment me when I say it. I just think it's good to have somebody truth-telling that's, that's in my position. But... Let me ask a question because I noticed this little thing that happens when when people have to have an operation. What do they do? No, they put them to sleep. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm saying that one of the things that all the 
and I don't want to attack academics because I love y'all. But one of the things is like, keep it simple. Like a lot of this stuff that we're struggling with, it's just a matter of doing basic math, right? When I was in Danville, I started a program called the Building Block. What I discovered really quickly was my biggest fight wasn't the police. It was my peers because they said, man, you're trying to do something different. And it dawned on me. I need to rock them to sleep in order to get this system going. And I mean that not like in a disrespectful way. I mean, it simply as understanding basic science. Right. That if I'm trying to cut on you to change some stuff to fix some stuff, you're going to scream and you're going to scream. But we either restrain you or we rock or we put you to sleep. And I'm saying what we use was knowledge because like most of the staff are depressed drinkers. Like it was officers that became rich by buying bars outside of 20 minutes from the prisons. And you can see this all around the state of Illinois and the staff come from screaming and holler at hollering at the incarcerated population and then going drinking their checks away at the bars because they're depressed and committing suicide. Those are real things. What we did when we started this program was I noticed not only did my peers begin to think differently because we started building our own training, but staff started thinking different because they saw the product. And I think it's easier when people see the product of change, when they see the movement of change, they begin to believe again. And people may not like this, but even and I'm going to say this and, and I'm going to ask forgiveness, but it's just a fact to me. The thing that Adolf Hitler saw is that the morale of the German people was so low that he could tell them anything. It's the same thing that happened with Donald Trump. The morale of white people, and I love y'all too, right, was low. And he knew he can play to that. We giving too much to them people, them brown and black. And, you know, everybody but us are benefiting from our America. And the same thing is with correction to go back yeah. to the point is there's a business of corrections and then there's the trauma. Right. The business aspect is the people saying, hey, keep prisons open. Y'all allowed industry to leave the country, you know, Caterpillar, et cetera, right? And so y'all build these prisons to maintain our livelihoods. And my uncle and my mother and my fathers and my grandfather are all correctional people. And we're good people. But you're living off of the blood of people. Yeah. And that has to be revealed in a slow but steady way. So I'm saying not rock you to sleep will go to sleep, but make you comfortable enough that I could do the surgery. And that's that, what I mean by that. Either that or wake them the fuck up. But okay, I, I hear what you're saying. The thing that I think, you know, I think that it's, you're describing so many important things. I think that the criminalization of an entire community, it reminds me of an invading, occupying army, say in Vietnam, saying, well, here's a part of Vietnam that's all... NLF, all Viet Cong, anybody in there is presumed to be bad. And then you just go in there and everyone's a criminal. That's where you start from. In our country, to go back to your example, I mean, white supremacy is a real material force that's always there. I've never seen it as organized, as well-developed, as living in the West Wing, as I've seen it in the last few years. But it's, it's there. But I think what is important about what you're saying, Vinny, about the contradiction you're living in, 
I think we all live in contradiction. And what I admire about the way you just answered that question is you're facing the contradiction. That allows you at least to to keep walking through it. None of us is free of it. When we teach at Stateville, we recognize that we're part of we're part of the system. You know, we're we're abolitionists at the same time, but we also are a functioning part of the system. So I think that's important to to remember. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was, uh, as I've done this, it was on my shoulder was people like you and Bernadine and, and, and people that have been mentors to me, Jerry Miller, I mean, others in my world, whereas I didn't grow up in a system like a lot of other department heads. So when I went in, I had an obligation to my community that, and, and my community wasn't corrections people, probation people, mm. juvenile justice people, they were advocates. And so I had another way to gain consensual validation about right. what I was doing. And I think a lot of people in a system, their consensual validation about reform is this super hyper-technical incremental version yeah. of reform. If I just get a better risk assessment mm. instrument, if we use this evidence-based practice that's got a really complicated name, that's profound system reform. Yeah. And it's scary in there when you run any systems. It, right. it's, it's just legitimately frightening. People have done a lot of bad things. Many of them are likely to do more bad things. And so you want to hang your hat on something. To throw the long ball when you're in there, it's scary. And if I, if I didn't have people like you backing me up or, conversely, kicking me in the ass if mm. I didn't do the right thing, I don't know. That's good. I don't mm. know. That's good. You know, I want to... I, I wanna, see if there are some comments, questions from you all. But I want to just make one last observation. Um, you know, Ronaldo and I are old comrades. We work together in a lot of things. Ronaldo was giving a talk the other day, and he said something that brings your whole book to mind. He said, you know, I went into prison as a kid, and nobody ever once said to me, there or for the, ne ne for the next you know, 38 years, what do you need? Nobody ever said, what do you need? They, they push you here, they push you there, but nobody actually sat down and said, what could you use? Mm -hmm. what, and then the same is true with probation. You're coming out, nobody says, what do you need? One of the most astonishing things for Bernie and me, you know, our family, Kathy Boudin, David Gilbert, David got out after 40 years and 10 days. We happened to be on a call with his first probation officer. She was of the old school. She was a social worker, mm -hmm. not a cop. And the first thing she said to him was, what do you need? <laughs> and I thought of you, you know, what do you need? How can we help you? What is your son feeling about this? And so on and so on. She was of the old school. She was some, you know, she was an anomaly. Right. Because she wasn't saying, I'm going to be there at 7 o'clock to check on you. She was saying, I'm here to see if we can, are you okay with the job? Is your housing working out? Amazing. The other thing that Ronaldo often says, and I'm, I'm quoting you so you can correct me, I'd rather quote you when you're not here, <laughs> but he says two things that you should, I think, keep in mind, and we all should keep in mind. One is, I like the second chances program, but when I went in, I had not had a first chance, and no one who I was on death row with had a first chance. We call them mitigating factors. They don't count for much in a court, but if you go in and you can't read and you can't have never held a job, you're living in violence, you're houseless, what was your first chance? So let's think about a society that gives people a first chance. The other thing I always love that you come back to is 
I believe in the Innocence Project. We have a lot of work to do in Illinois to get the, the, the wrongfully convicted out. But what about somebody who was convicted who did what they said he did? You did what they said you did. But you're, and Ronaldo is the best advocate for this. I'm still a human being. What are you going to do with me now? Yeah. I'm a human person. What are you going to do with me? Yeah. And I think that's a, those two points are very. Maybe you want to yeah. expand on that because I'm quoting you. Yeah, 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 you ain't quoting me, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I talk I about it. no, no. But I love. Did Bill. he make it better or worse? He, <laughs> no, he makes it always better. Listen, I talk about not first chances but fair chances because first, second, those terms are playable. But when you say fair chance, like when I went to prison in 1983, I was a functioning illiterate. Right. I also suffer from compound trauma. You know, my brother shot me in the chest with a 12 gauge. I watched my twin brother get kicked down a flight of stairs and broke his neck and died. I mean, we can just go down the line, the line of things. And so I went to self-medicate. And so during my 37 years of incarceration, a therapist, a social worker, no one ever came to the cell and say, hey, man, what boy, what happened? Yeah. No one. Right. And then. Being and I and I say this intentionally, the building block program, YouTube, check it out, right? Danville Correctional Center is a program that I developed. And one of the things that really was profound for me is I used to teach emotional intelligence, right? I understand anger management, you know, it's a it's a secondary emotion. Like we can go through all of that. But when I came home and was put on parole, my parole agent, my parole agent demanded that I take anger management classes. And I was like, I facilitated anger management for 14 years, right? I have trained more than probably 300 people on how to deal with emotions, emotional intelligence. And your first thing to me is you have anger issues from 1983. So, so did you say to this person, now you're pissing me off. I did. <laughs> I did. I did say this, but I didn't understand. But I had my lawyer, Jennifer Sober, with me. She's beautiful. Just for the record. She's yeah. tough. Like, but And I did say to them, wait a minute. I haven't been angry in years. Now I'm getting angry <laughs> because you're telling me this goofy stuff. Right? Like, wait a minute. Like. I was doing more to bring to for public safety than y'all doing. Right. That's right. Because I was speaking to my peers in a way in which was their humanity was respected and their intellect was challenged. Yes. Right? And so I was like, no, like we're better than what the public officials are saying about us. And so we changed and so the question and the, the push is narrative building. Yeah. How do we build a narrative? How do we get people to begin to talk? Like, I dare every one of you to leave here and not have this book and then not to invest in having eight more people come to the next presentation about it. Right. So that we can have bigger crowds and bigger. Take your cameras out. Everybody, please. <laughs> Take your phones out. Pull your, pull your book. Up. I'm going to show you how this works. Okay. Please. Look, I'm going to show y'all. This is, this is advocate. Like, this is not this anger is, management. This is public relations. Public okay. relations. Yeah, turn your, because they want to see your pretty face. Not you, Bill. Right? Take this picture, post it. Right? And say, we want to see a thousand people show up at the next event talking about how do we change the narrative around mass incarceration, probation, parole, etc. That's how we make a difference. And so I'm saying that to say... So many thoughts. Right? So many thoughts about what you're saying, man. Yeah, until, so until we start to do that, 
until we start to really align. I actually work with a warden, and it's so funny because I used to tell this warden when I go in the officer's kitchen, and he would say, what are you doing in the officer's kitchen? And I'd say, reparations, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and they used to leave me alone because I could get really loud. But I figured out the psychology that we're fighting. So while people like to talk about uh, racism, I think it's a philosophy, and it's not a white face. It's a philosophy that white faces get to push, mm-hmm. right? But if you're going to really change the narrative, then you have to have control of the philosophy that people follow, right? What is the philosophy around mass supervision, right? right? If you break that, then people are going to want something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So anyway, go ahead. Okay, so I want you to have some last words, and then we're going to not do question and answer, but what we're going to do is, Vinny will be up here signing books, and we can still keep the conversation going. But you have some last comments. Yeah, just what, the last thing you said just made me think about like how depersonalizing and dehumanizing the system is in ways that, again, I don't know that I fully appreciated when I was outside of it. I thought a lot more of it was animus, right? It was sort of a much more active hatred. And, you know, I, I learned what Elie Wiesel said, you know, about uh, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Mm-hmm. I felt like the system really reeked of indifference. And Gosh. I got to see that over and over again and in very disturbing ways. It's almost worse to see the bureaucratization of human beings than it mm-hmm. is. Like, I almost respected the guys that wanted to lock people up more than the people who just didn't give a shit, right? Mm-hmm. And we used to have uh, biannual conferences just to because people hadn't seen or learned anything. They were just kind of stuck in their cubby holes. And when every universities would go out of session, uh, we got them to let us use their space for free. So we brought my probation officers, and I'd bring all these speakers in, and a lot of them were formerly incarcerated people. And you don't know how many times my POs said to me, I've never had a conversation with somebody about what it's like to be on probation. Mm. I'm like, damn, you've been doing this for like 35 years. What do you mean? You see 100 people a day in the office. They're like, yeah, but all that is is the same stupid five questions I asked them last week. Next, right? That's what that is, right? Like, and pee in a cup. And I'm going to ask you, did you get arrested this week? Did you move? Did you get a job? Go, right? And... That was just really striking yeah. to me. Yeah. And then the, the women at the front desk, the scary women at the front desk, I got to talk to them. Right? They scared me. And I was the damn commissioner, right? And they were like, they gave me that look, you know, like that look, right? And, and, yeah. and I was like, why are you so angry, right? And let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you what my life's like. I got 100 guys in there. They're all frustrated because they can't get what they want out of the system. And they come up to me. And I got to get back to work now. I've been here two hours. And I'm making a decision. Who do I piss off today? My probation officer or my boss? Right? My probation officer can send me to jail. My boss can fire me. And I got to decide now because he's back there. I'm waiting two hours. Can you call him? Pick up the phone. Call him. No answer. Messages are full. Type him an email. No response. So now this guy's giving me attitude. So, you know, that happens for a couple of months. Now I just start with attitude because it ain't my fault. And if I glare at you then you're going to back off. And so there was just all these different ways that we kind of gradually strip humanity from people. Um, Irving Goffman called it uh, degradation rituals. You know, we just sort of ritualize this sort of degradation of human beings. And and what you said just sort of made me think about that um, in a way that I think in some respects defines why I think this dog won't hunt, that you cannot bureaucratize people this way. 
we, we got to go back to the communities and help resource them and, and engage with them and respect them in a way that will blow away anything we think we're getting from this thing we think is community corrections and community supervision. It's not. It's just the same carceral bureaucracy a few miles closer than Danville. That's all yeah. that is. Yeah. So that's that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Okay. Again, please pick up a book. Come up and have Vinny sign it. Have Ronaldo sign it. And thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Pilsen Community Books. Come back next Monday, Columbus Day. We're going to have a conversation about indigenous language in public schools. And it's Indigenous People's Day, not Columbus Day. I, I reject that. I tear down that statue. Uh, it's Indigenous People's Day, and we'll have that conversation next Monday. Thank you all for coming. Vinny, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this exact moment on the clock of the universe. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's get busy in projects to reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. 